Farmers' many tasks. Farmers obviously worry about the weather forecasts not just when their developing crops are affected, but also with respect to the many tasks they have to carry out throughout a growing season. A 30 mile per hour wind out of the south in early June may or may not affect how much a cornfield will ultimately yield, but it might prevent the farmer from applying herbicide that day because he wouldn't want the spray to drift onto a neighbor's field or tree strip. I've gone through the calendar of how crops develop throughout a year, but it may be useful for you to know the specific tasks that farmers perform to facilitate that crop growth. These tasks don't have much relevance to the underlying market price for grains, but nonetheless, it might be helpful for you to know what your farmer colleagues and neighbors are up to. Field Preparation Think back to the story of my ancestors picking rocks out of South Dakota fields. Field preparation tasks can vary depending on the environment and the soil type of any particular field. And there can be a lot of physical work required to initially prepare a field or to maintain it from one year to the next. In the northern plains, the initial task may be rock removal. For river bottom ground farther east, it may be clearing brush and grinding tree stumps. For very hilly ground, farmers may build terraces, leveled steps tracing a field's topography, built wide enough to get farming equipment across. And which prevent soil from eroding and washing down the hill. For heavy soils that retain a lot of moisture, farmers may install a tiling system beneath the surface, which historically involved digging a pattern of clay or concrete pipes under the soil by hand to draw water away from crops' roots and let gravity direct it away to a nearby body of water. Today, tiling is usually done with power equipment and porous plastic pipe. On the other hand, if a field is too sandy or located in either a dry climate or above a cheap source of water, farmers may install an irrigation system. Historically, and still today, some irrigation has been accomplished by a system of permanent gravity fed canals and ditches with temporary gated pipes placed in a field by hand each year. Center pivot irrigation with sprinklers on tall rolling metal frames that sweep around fields in circular or windshield wiper patterns is also an efficient way to deliver water and nutrients to growing plants. Even more efficient is the practice of subsurface drip irrigation. Thin plastic drip tape tubes are buried more than a foot below the soil in parallel lines every few feet across a field, with fluid emitters every two feet along the tubes. With drip tape irrigation, fluids can be delivered directly to crops' roots without risk of evaporation, and fields can be programmed into zones with computerized control of how nutrients get delivered to each zone. Computerized control of nutrient delivery based on GPS data can also be accomplished with center pivot irrigation, and none of this is cheap. Even doing nothing more complicated than getting water from below the ground, for instance, from a well, onto a crop requires some kind of pump and some kind of energy to power that pump, like diesel or natural gas. Even in fields that require no major infrastructure projects, 
there can still be seedbed preparation tasks that pop up in any given year. Erosion or compaction in certain areas of a field might require some time-consuming soil preparation one year. The bridges, roads, and approaches a farmer requires to get his equipment into a field may require maintenance the next year. Altogether, field preparation activities can be some of the most time-consuming and expensive tasks in a farmer's annual repertoire. Tillage. A more routine farming task is tilling the soil. Contrary to the image of oxen pulling heavy equipment in a historical drama, today's farmers don't do much plowing anymore. The moldboard plow was the device that skewed society toward assigning relatively more value to the gender with the most upper body strength. It's basically a wedge-shaped piece of metal which must be forced into the ground with significant down pressure. Then dragged through the soil and roots with a great deal of power. Multiple plows can be attached side by side in gangs to till a wider swath of soil with each pass, and that, of course, requires even more horsepower. Today's farmers may still need to use a moldboard plow to turn very heavy soil types or soil with a lot of deep roots in it. However, a far more common tillage tool is a chisel plow. Which has much thinner blades than a moldboard plow, digs a shallower path into the soil, and therefore requires less horsepower per shank to pull. This means one tractor can pull a much wider implement. Chisel plows can be more than sixty feet wide, although most farmers don't have powerful enough pulling equipment, large enough fields, or urgent enough efficiency needs to make a sixty-foot chisel a necessity. Farmers may also use a disc harrow or ripper to aerate soil in preparation for planting. These are similar to chisel plows, but rather than shanks, they use saucer-shaped coulters to cut vertically into the soil. There is a growing movement among farmers to adopt vertical tillage practices that minimally disturb the soil profile with little or no horizontal disruption. On the most progressive end of the environmentally beneficial spectrum are no-till practices, which limit soil erosion, maximize organic residue, preserve soil moisture, and bring down the fuel and labor costs of farming. Wherever the soil type and climate makes no-till farming possible, the time-consuming traditions of digging up black soil and allowing that soil to blow away or wash away are waning. These days, if tillage is done, it's either in the spring, right before planting, to loosen the soil for seed placement, or in the fall after a harvest to break up the past crop's residue. In any case, farmers are rarely using tillage as a weed control technique anymore. Historically, farmers used to run a cultivator in between crop rows to disrupt mid-season weed development in their fields. Or they even hoed out individual weeds by hand. Now, chemical herbicides can accomplish most of these weed control tasks. In fact, chemical herbicides are the one reason why no-till agriculture, farmers' greatest soil conservation tool, is even possible. Today, tillage is mostly a technique for preparing very heavy soils or for delivering nutrients deeper into the soil. Planting. Up to this point in the farmer's task list, 
nothing had to be too precise. As long as he got all the soil prepared without running his tractor into any fences, it doesn't matter very much what pattern he drove to get the job done. Once he goes to put seed into the ground, however, it becomes crucial to maximize the efficiency of the geometrical placing of each row of seeds. Planters, air seeders, and drills are implements that are pulled behind a tractor like tillage equipment and which may have similar coulters and down pressure to get the parallel rows of seeds the right depth into the soil with the right spacing between each seed. Row crop planters tend to be manufactured in six or eight row sections. Twenty-four row planters are common. With each row perhaps thirty inches apart, or some other width, to facilitate eventual harvesting by similarly configured equipment. Once a farmer makes one pass of 24 rows of corn seed, for instance, he could just turn around and try to drive a perfectly parallel next pass. He won't necessarily be able to see where the previous pass of seed was placed, but he can use the wheel marker to guide him. However, if his driving wobbles even a little, he could leave a few extra inches of unplanted soil, or he could overseed some areas. Farmers carefully select what planting population will optimize the yield in a particular field. Too few plants per acre could underutilize the soil and inputs, but too many plants per acre can compete against each other and draw down total yield. So to get seed perfectly distributed in an efficient geometrical pattern, without any skips or overseeding, the agriculture industry has embraced GPS, Global Positioning System Technology, as part of an entire suite of precision agriculture techniques. Precision agriculture involves managing crop production in the smallest, most precise units possible, sometimes even seed by seed. It can include anything that manages the data for intra-field variations of a crop. Does the field require less nutrients in the low spots? Does it yield better on the south side of the hill? It all starts with accurately recording data about what was planted, what variety of seed, and at what population was it planted on each square foot of soil. To accurately track that seed's performance throughout a growing season, the farmer must know its exact geographic location on Earth so that a planting map can be compared to a mid-season aerial photograph, for instance, and ultimately to the eventual harvesting map. Thus, the development of GPS-guided planters. The system works by attaching a dual array of GPS receivers to the tractor, which can measure not only the tractor's latitude and longitude, but also its geometric angle compared to the horizon, so the system can account for seed rows planted on a hill, for instance. Then the whole rig is guided in perfectly parallel passes using hydraulic auto-steer. Depending on how accurate the underlying GPS guidance is, the passes can be accurate to within one inch of the intended path. The planter boxes are a measured distance from the tractor itself, so the system knows exactly where each row of seeds is being planted into the soil and can map each seed's location and depth. If the planter is equipped with independent air clutches for each seed row or each section of seed rows, 
then the in-cab computer can also shut off the flow of seeds as the planter passes back over areas that have already been planted, like at the end of rows or at the corners of fields. This obviously saves the farmer in fuel consumption and seed costs. Between 3 and 12 percent less seed gets used, depending on a field's terrain. But the real savings from precision ag planting comes from the increased crop yield that is possible when a farmer can put an ideal seed population onto every square foot of his field. After the first decade of the 21st century, not all farmers have made the investment in these precision ag technologies, but the adoption rate is growing. Yield monitors, for instance, are used on over half of U.S. corn and soybean fields during harvest. Scouting It may not seem like very hard work for a farmer to get in his pickup truck and drive around the county and look at his fields, and his neighbor's fields, but crop scouting is a very important task throughout a growing season. There are any number of stressors that can limit a crop's yield potential, and the key to managing those stressors is to anticipate or identify them as quickly as possible. Aside from weather stressors, which a farmer can't do much to mitigate unless his fields have an irrigation system, crops can also be pressured by weeds, annuals, biennials, perennials, and grasses. Or insects, bugs, beetles, weevils, flies, moths, grasshoppers. Or non-insects, slugs, mites, and isopods. Or diseases, bacterial infections, fungal infections, viruses, nematodes, and phytoplasmas. Sometimes, by the time a farmer notices a stressor in his field, it will be too late to do anything, and sometimes there won't be anything he can do. Goss's wilt, for instance, is a bacterial corn disease with no known treatment, although it can be somewhat managed with pre-planting decisions like crop rotations, residual tillage, and selection of partially resistant hybrids. Similarly, Asian soybean rust is a fungus that's difficult to treat if its trademark lesions are identified too late in the disease's development. If a farmer is unsure of something he's noted in his fields, he may consult an agronomist. Agronomy is a branch of science which involves the application of plant science, that is, biology, and soil science to crop production. That consultation may not only help the farmer correctly identify the stressor, but also help prescribe the correct treatment. Chemical Application To facilitate crop growth, there are nitrogen-based fertilizers and other mineral nutrients. To control insects, there are insecticides. To control diseases, there are fungicides and nematicides. To control weeds, there are herbicides. In the event that a farmer needs to use any of these chemical substances, Rest assured, he doesn't want to apply any more of it than he absolutely has to, if for no other reason than because the stuff is expensive and cuts into profits. The development of herbicide-tolerant crop varieties was a disruptive technology that allowed farmers to abandon mechanical tillage for post-emergence weed control. Now they can plant carefully engineered seed, allow the plants to sprout, and then after the plants have emerged, the farmers can spray herbicide directly on the entire field, grain plants and all, 
but the herbicide will only destroy the non-tolerant plants, that is to say, the weeds. It can only be done with certain chemical herbicides and certain proprietary seed technology, and woe to the chemical applicator who sprays the wrong herbicide on the wrong field. So it's a favorable method for agrochemical companies to sell patented products. But it has truly revolutionized agriculture. Beyond saving humankind millions of hours of hoeing, it saves the country's topsoil from Dust Bowl-style soil erosion because it allows farmers to grow crops with minimal or no tillage. However, just like some human bacteria have grown resistant to certain antibiotics, the multi-decade usefulness of certain herbicides has allowed some weeds to develop resistances. Agrochemical companies are constantly trying to bring new modes of action to compete in the market for farmers' dollars as they strive to keep yield-limiting weeds and other pests out of their crops. There are many different techniques to actually apply these products. Fertilizer can be knifed into the soil with a disc before or during planting, or it may be side-dressed precisely along the rows after the plants have sprouted. Chemicals that need to be widely broadcast across a field may be delivered through an irrigation system, saving a farmer the labor of driving a sprayer back and forth across the field. For the majority of fields which don't have an irrigation system, however, chemicals need to be delivered by spraying equipment that drives between the growing rows of plants or by aerial applicators, also known as crop duster aircraft, that fly over them. Here again, GPS precision agriculture equipment can save a lot of time and money because chemicals can be delivered to each square foot of ground only in the precise rates required with no waste. Harvesting Once a crop has made it past all the threats it faced during a growing season and has finally matured into dry grain, farmers must harvest the crop. Historically, this was a two-step process. First, cutting the plants with a header, which was pushed ahead of a team of animals. Then, threshing or flailing the cut material to separate the grain from the stalks and leaves. In the early 1800s, combine harvesters were invented, which combined the two tasks of cutting and threshing. It's still possible to hear young farmers talk about picking corn or threshing grain simply because those were the terms passed down to them through previous generations of farmers. Today's combines, however, are probably the most technologically advanced pieces of equipment, and certainly the most expensive, a farmer is likely to own or lease. In recent years, in-cab mini-refrigerators have even been included for the operator's beverages. When these features arrive on the market, they always make quite a splash at farm equipment shows. However many bells and whistles a combine might have, however well it collects precision agriculture data for each square foot of a field, it still accomplishes the same basic tasks of cutting and collecting plant material with a header, feeding that material into a threshing drum where the grain is gleaned out, then blowing out the residue and collecting the harvested grain into a large hopper. Harvesting is the farm task that requires the most parallel labor. One farmer can probably plant all his fields by himself in series, one after the other. But at harvest, 
it's more efficient to have multiple people simultaneously operating a combine, a grain cart to collect grain out of the combine's hopper, and trucks to haul that grain either to storage or to a grain-buying facility. The bottleneck can be any one of those tasks. Maybe the combine harvesting 1,000 bushels per hour is the slowest part of the operation chain. Or maybe the farmer bought a bigger, faster combine, but now his grain cart can only get unloaded so fast. Maybe the elevator in town is backed up with other farmers' trucks, and it wouldn't matter how fast the grain could be combined because there's no place to take it very quickly. Rather than hiring a bunch of part-time help to get his grain harvested, as he currently does, a farmer today has to start wondering about the time when fully autonomous equipment, which does exist, could become widely adopted. Tractors that pull planters already have GPS-guided auto steer. Combine headers already have sensors to make sure they're lined up optimally with the rows, at the right height, and with the right throughput settings. Grain carts and all other equipment can be outfitted with optical remote sensing technologies to prevent these drone implements from running into obstacles. Adoption of fully autonomous agricultural equipment seems a much closer reality than adoption of fully autonomous automobiles, for instance. But as of 2017, such equipment hasn't been deployed in U.S. cornfields. The benefits of reduced labor requirements generally haven't yet outweighed the costs of implementing such a system. Most farmers probably wouldn't be willing to turn such expensive equipment loose with just a computer driving it and no human operator, yet. For now, precision agriculture adopters are perfectly able to use human labor and are simply satisfied with their savings on input costs and their improved yield potentials from advanced data analysis. Grain Handling once the grain is out of the field and tucked away in storage, the farmer's job isn't done. He can spend much of the off-season transporting his grain to market, or simply managing its condition. Precision agriculture can play a role here, too, with remote sensors within grain bins to communicate the grain's moisture, temperature, and inventory level. Too high moisture, or too high temperature, can threaten rot and or heat damage to the grain. Behind the Scenes If he's not fixing equipment, cleaning equipment, drying grain, unloading grain from a bin to a truck, or driving a grain truck to market, or if the winter weather is too hostile to support any outdoor grain handling tasks, a farmer's job still isn't done. The decisions of when to market grain, at what price, and to whom, or the decisions of what crops to plant, with which seed varieties on which fields using which inputs, aren't the kinds of decisions that can be made on a knee-jerk hunch. Good farm management requires education, research, and communication with a farmer's customers and input suppliers, some of which can be caught up during those months when the crop isn't actively growing in the field. Row Crops Supply and Demand Many of a farmer's tasks will be specific to the crop being grown. U.S. farmers grow four times as much corn, by volume, than the next biggest crop, which is soybeans, 
so by default most of my discussion of farming tasks was centered on those row crops. They are so-called because they are typically planted in parallel rows. Corn production practices are a pretty good benchmark for discussing most other crops' production techniques, but corn does have its idiosyncrasies. One of corn's most important traits, which has directly led to its prominence and popularity, is heterosis, also known as hybrid vigor. Put simply, heterosis is the word for corn's ability to cross-breed well. Within one generation, the offspring of two cross-pollinated corn varieties can display better genetic traits than the sum of its two parents, especially in comparison with the time-consuming, many-generational process of selectively breeding plant species which don't crossbreed so well, the creation of hybrid corn seed has led to an astounding yield curve over the past 70 years. Since the 1940s, widespread deployment of hybrid corn seed throughout the corn belt has led the national average corn yield not simply to grow at a linear rate, about an extra one and a half bushels per acre per year, but actually to grow at an exponential rate, which means that not only are we adding more than a bushel per acre to the average yield each year, but the amount we add itself increases year after year. The ability of seed companies to sell farmers these profitable hybrid varieties obviously leads to a great deal of excitement for those products and a subsequent willingness to pay for them. Market demand then encourages seed companies to keep investing in ever more advanced traits and ever quicker techniques for bringing them to market, like seed chipping and DNA sequencing. The whole cycle of developing seed characteristics and creating demand for those seed characteristics is like a self-sustaining fire within the industry. Corn seed is more profitable for a seed company to develop and sell and for a farmer to buy and grow, than most other species, and it's all due to heterosis. But that's a fairly esoteric characteristic of corn, one that most farmers may not spend a lot of time thinking about. Rather, the characteristics they look for when buying seed corn include comparative relative maturity, or some similar metric, that communicates how many growing degree days are needed for the hybrid to mature. Regions with shorter growing seasons may need to plant 90-day corn rather than a hybrid with a CRM of 100 or higher. The intended end user must also be considered when choosing corn seed. Is the farmer intending to sell into a specialized market, like the white corn market, the popcorn market, or the seed corn market? Is he planting with a new enzyme that breaks down and flows through his local ethanol plant better, for which they will pay him a premium? Have the traits been approved for export? Also, a farmer will consider the characteristics a specific hybrid has been bred to exhibit. Root strength, stalk strength, drought tolerance, faster dry down of the grain, higher grain test weight, etc. All those characteristics can be achieved from hybridizing corn, which is a traditional breeding technique. Above and beyond basic hybridization, there is another way to create new varieties of corn. Actual genetic modification of the corn seed's DNA 
has allowed seed companies to offer even more exciting, useful, or yield-enhancing characteristics to their products. If a variety of corn seed is single-stacked, that means it has been imbued with a genetic characteristic, usually a protein that may come from a non-corn species, which allows it to resist pressure from a stressor like corn rootworms, or to resist corn borers, or which allows it to resist a specific post-emergence herbicide like glyphosate. Corn seed may also be double-stacked, meaning it has two of those three resistances, or triple-stacked, meaning it contains all three genetic modifications. Indeed, as the seed industry develops ever more genetic modifications to help corn resist other stressors, like drought, we will see an infinite number of stacks in our corn seed. For now, quadruple-stacked corn exists. Once the seed is planted, no matter what type of seed is planted, corn plants will go through a series of defined growth stages. VE is vegetative emergence, when the seed first sprouts and remains below soil. About a week later, the corn plant will display one leaf, that's V1, or two leaves, that's V2, above ground, and as the plant gets taller and adds more leaves, the V stages keep getting higher. Between V6 and V12, the corn plant will need to receive about two inches of water per week, or it will suffer. Yield reduction can be as high as 2% per day if the corn plant faces drought during these stages. V14 to V15 is the most critical time period for the crop, as silking starts to occur. The corn plant's silks are effectively its flowers, so their condition and how well they receive pollen will directly determine how many kernels of corn grow on each ear of each plant. Field corn typically only sets one or sometimes two ears per plant. During pollination, corn yield reduction can be as high as 6% per day in a drought. VT is the term for tasseling, when the corn plant sheds pollen from the tassels at its top. At this point, the corn plant will have its maximum height and all the subsequent development stages refer to the ear of grain itself. R1 is silking. R2 is blistering, when the kernels start to fill. R3 is milking. R4 is the dough stage. R5 is the dent stage. And R6 is physiological maturity. Once corn is produced and brought to market, the market's interest in a farmer's work may cease, but its interest in that corn does not. Remember there are two sides of supply and demand, and demand is no less important to price than supply is. However, it's nearly impossible to break demand down into discrete tasks and describe in detail, because the ways in which corn can be demanded and used are almost as varied as human existence. Bits of corn grown by U.S. farmers as described above could end up in the ketchup bottle in your refrigerator as high fructose corn syrup, could end up in the packing peanuts in your next delivery as a starch byproduct, could end up in your car's fuel tank as ethanol, or could be ground up into a highly complex nutrition mixture being fed to livestock. 
There is no substance on earth more useful, more capable of being bent to human requirement, than corn. Oil might come close, but you can't eat oil. To assign all the uses of corn into categories, it's useful to adopt the same categories as the USDA uses each month when it releases its World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates, the WASDE report. On the supply side, there are either carryover stocks from the previous growing season, then imports, which are unusual for corn in the U.S., or new production. On the demand side for corn, the USDA lists four main categories. First, food, seed, and industrial. When the grain markets talk about corn to be used in the human food chain, it's important to distinguish that we're not talking about the sweet corn varieties that you'd buy as whole ears or canned corn. Rather, food here describes dry field corn that has been sold with certain characteristics, usually color, usually white, and a high enough quality to be processed for human food products like cornmeal or the corn flour used to make tortilla chips. For corn of that quality, and for seed corn, the market usually has to pay a significant premium, 10% of the price or more, in order to motivate growers to take on the extra production tasks, the extra risk, and the generally lower yield potentials. Seed corn refers to corn, usually hybridized, that isn't grown to be placed into the broader market, but will rather be treated with inedible fungicides and saved for the following spring's planting needs. The industrial segment is closely related to the food segment, because some corn enters the human food chain by way of high-fructose corn syrup, which is the sugar molecules of the grain, but when those molecules are processed by wet milling, other parts of the grain are simultaneously processed, like starch and oil. Corn starch can be used as a cooking ingredient, a thickener used in gravies, as a baby powder, or to produce industrial products like eco-friendly plastics and styrofoams. And corn oil can similarly be used as a food ingredient, cooking oil or margarine, or as the raw material for industrial products. The next category, ethanol and byproducts. The corn used for ethanol, a biofuel substitute for gasoline, undergoes a similar milling process, either wet milling or dry milling, as the corn used to produce industrial sugars, starches, and oils. Once milled, the sugar solution is simply distilled into alcohol, like any bootlegger would distill corn whiskey, except on a much larger scale. And afterward, ethanol plants denature their alcohol with poisonous additives to make it inedible. So you might think an ethanol plant could get away with using lower-quality grain or even inedibly damaged corn as the raw material for its process. However, there are fiber and starches left over after corn's sugars have been extracted in an ethanol plant, and those byproducts are also marketable. They are called distiller's grains, or dried distiller's grains, DDGs, and are used as animal feed. Corn that is sold to an ethanol plant is never wasted, and in fact, much of it, about 30% by volume, 
ends up back on the feed market as DDGs anyway. So although it's hard to account for those bushels in both the ethanol and feed categories of demand, the ethanol industry truly doesn't steal away as many bushels from the feed sector as the numbers might otherwise imply. Although the ethanol industry today no longer receives a per-gallon blender's credit from the government, in the late 2000s, government support of the ethanol industry for environmental and energy independence goals made the corn market itself highly sensitive to politics. This phenomenon may certainly continue as various industry participants, senators, lobbyists, and the Environmental Protection Agency all join the discussion about how much ethanol could or should be blended into the nation's fuel supply. Also, just like the corn market, which reflects an entire world's worth of supply and demand, ethanol and DDGs can be and do get exported out of and imported into the United States. That balance itself is subject to the international politics of currency exchange rates and the environmental desirability of biofuels. Next category, feed. Grain, of course, gets fed to livestock, which in turn produce such agricultural products as beef, pork, poultry, fish, eggs, and milk. In the WASDI reports from the 1970s, before the ethanol industry ramped up and before kids started drinking so much soda pop, the feed category of corn demand used up more than half the nation's total supply. Now, livestock feeding accounts for less than 35% of the national corn supply, unless you include those 30% of bushels used in the ethanol crush, in which case animal feed use still accounts for about 45% of the nation's supply. All market data about the livestock sector, including USDA's monthly cattle on feed reports, their hogs and pig reports, and all the supply and demand data collected by either the USDA or private analysts about poultry, aquaculture, and the rest of the livestock industry, therefore directly affect the corn market too. However, feed demand for corn is more elastic than some traders realize. There are many substitutes for corn in livestock feed rations. Although livestock producers are careful about animal nutrition calculations and don't usually make sudden switches from ground corn to some other grain, most animals can also process sorghum grain, also known as milo, or feed wheat or soybean meal to receive their daily requirements for energy and protein. There is a different mix of energy, protein, fats, and minerals in every feedstuff, but ultimately, all feedstuffs or mixtures of feedstuffs can be expressed as some combination of those nutrients. Dried milk pellets, beet pulp, the cast-offs from an Oreo cookie factory, all these things can be used as animal feed instead of corn, although they will typically need to be mixed with other ingredients to reach an ideal nutrient content for the livestock species being fed. The implication for the corn market is that high prices can indeed ration the demand for corn itself, and the wheat market can sometimes benefit from that spillover demand. The last category, exports. 
Exports are another demand category that receives its own cluster of market data from the USDA and from private estimators. Weekly, the USDA reports how much grain U.S. exporters have committed to sell to foreign buyers, and from which countries those foreign buyers originate. That's the export sales report. There is a separate weekly report that details how much grain was actually physically loaded out from American exporting facilities each week. That's the export inspections report. But while these are sources of official data, that doesn't stop the market from responding to more timely rumors of big sales or cancellations of previous sales. Sometimes a foreign buyer's big purchase may be directly observable in the futures market as U.S. commercial grain companies hedge their physical sales with futures buying. Always remember that whoever bought or sold the grain, and wherever the grain is headed, once it gets there, it will still have to either be fed to livestock, fed to humans, or turned into some useful product. The other row crops have their own idiosyncrasies and their own supply and demand situations. Soybeans, for instance, require relatively less nitrogen and water to grow than corn. Young soybean plants are relatively more sensitive to standing water in their field. They say soybeans don't like wet feet. And relatively more sensitive to early frost than corn plants are. Their flowering and fill stages occur later in the growing season and stretch out for a longer period of time than corn's stages do, and it's therefore relatively more difficult to predict a soybean field's yield before harvest, although you can calculate the average pods per plant and beans per pod, than it is to predict a cornfield's yield, where all you have to do is observe the ears per acre and kernels per ear. Other than that, the growing crop's terminology will seem familiar. VE for emergence, V1, V2, V3, etc. for each subsequent trifoliolate, that is, bunch of three leaves. Flowering starts after V6, followed by full bloom, pod setting, pod fill, leaf dropping, and maturity. Obviously, the pests and diseases and related treatments will be different for soybeans than corn, but the same agronomists and ag chemical retailers who provide inputs for corn farmers are also knowledgeable about soybean production. However, cornfields tend to yield three and a half to four times more grain by volume than soybean fields, and harvested soybeans tend to shrink and shatter more than other grains. So farmers, elevators, input retailers, and seed companies have historically treated their soybean business as an afterthought to their main cash cow, corn. Possibly the main reason so many soybeans get planted in the United States is that it's considered good practice to rotate a field through different crops from one year to the next, rather than planting corn after corn after corn. Also, soybeans are a legume which means they actually fix nitrogen into the soil for the next crop. Also, their relatively cheaper seeds and inputs sometimes make them attractive to farmers who are looking to save expenses. The popularity of soybeans may be changing as the global supply and demand situation shifts from year to year, 
sometimes making U.S. soybeans more profitable than corn. The market itself plays a role in row crop planting decisions. The demand categories for soybeans will be similar to the ones for corn, except that they are applied not only to soybeans themselves, but also to their crush products, soybean oil and soybean meal. It's uncommon for soybeans to be consumed as whole, dry beans. A very specialized market exists for edamame, that is, soybeans in pod, consumed fresh by humans like sweet corn, or for non-GMO or organic or specially colored, high-quality soybeans that can enter the human food chain and be processed into soy-based products like tofu. But for the most part, the only people who would use a whole dry soybean out of an American soybean field would be a livestock feeder, and even that is rare. More frequently, end users will purchase one of the two soybean byproducts, meal or oil, after the beans have been extruded in a processing plant. Soybean meal is used as a very popular livestock feed. Some categories of livestock, like farmed fish, might never consume an ounce of corn in their lives, but soybean meal is the main staple of their diets. Soybean meal's demand categories include both domestic use and exports, although exports make up less than a third of total demand. Because the end goal of a soybean processor is to sell a feed product with a certain protein profile with specific amino acids to animal nutritionists, Processors need to measure the raw soybeans coming into their plants for their protein and oil contents. There is a market mismatch, and thus endless arbitrage opportunities, between farmers selling as many bushels of soybeans as they can raise and processors selling as high a quality meal and oil product as they can produce. Processors could reflect the value of each individual load of soybeans with load-by-load -load premiums based on each load's measured protein level and other characteristics. But instead, they tend to assume they know the quality of soybeans across an entire region and reflect that in their basis bids, pocketing any difference between the relatively cheap basis they pay to farmers and the hoped-for premium they receive for their extruded products. Warmer regions like Brazil and the U.S. Delta tend to produce soybeans with a higher protein content, which are then more highly sought after. Nevertheless, there are a few soybean premium programs that directly pay growers a load-by-load -load premium or discount schedule for soybeans above or below 48% crude protein, for instance. Soybean oil is also produced domestically, then either used domestically for cooking oil or as a food ingredient in industrial applications or as a biofuel, or exported. But exports are a relatively small portion of the picture. Soybeans themselves, therefore, are either kept as seed for the next year's crop, crushed domestically into soybean meal and soybean oil, at levels reported monthly in the National Oilseed Processors Association, that is, NOPA, crush report, or exported to some other country where the buyers will do their own crushing. Soybean extrusion is a value-adding process, 
so politically, most countries would prefer to buy soybeans whole and keep as much of the industry within their own borders as possible. No discussion of soybean demand would be complete without mentioning China, which is by far the world's number one importer of soybeans, over half the world market. Although China has its own agricultural land, it prefers to direct its resources toward growing feed grains domestically and then effectively outsourcing soybean production to the Western Hemisphere. A final row crop to mention is grain sorghum, also known as milo. Sorghum may be grown specifically as a hay or silage crop, and sweet sorghum is the term for a molasses-like substance that is processed from sorghum cane. But if this species is harvested as grain, then semantically the word sorghum equals the word milo. They are not two separate grain crops. There is no difference between them. They are simply two words for the same thing. Milo is directly comparable to corn in almost every way. If you drive past a young, green, growing row crop field before the grain has pollinated, you'd have to look twice to tell whether it was milo or corn. Milo plants tend to be a little shorter and spikier. If you're feeding livestock or running an ethanol plant, you can pretty much directly substitute milo for corn in a one-to-one -one ratio. The main differences between milo and corn are evolutionary. The ancestors of modern corn plants developed in Central America, while sorghum developed in Africa. The two crops also have cosmetic differences. Corn grows in ears that set fruits, kernels, about halfway up each plant's stalk but milo sets its fruits up in the tassels at the top of the plant, like corn's ancestor, the wild teosinte grass, used to do. Each little kernel of milo is a tiny spherical berry, ranging in color from white to dark red, making the dry grain look quite distinct from corn kernels. I should add that there's no gluten in sorghum, making its flour and sugar products appealing for humans who are allergic to gluten. In any case, it's the production practices that really set milo and corn apart from each other. Milo is somewhat drought-tolerant and well-suited to arid climates, so even though corn tends to produce about two and a half times as much grain per acre as a national average, The yields and profits from milo can exceed those from corn in relatively dry regions like northwest Kansas. Beyond its established geography in western Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado, and South Dakota, however, it's not a very widely grown crop in the United States. Corn and milo also differ in price, with milo historically selling at a discount to corn, if for no other reason than its relative unfamiliarity and less established supply chain. Because milo is such a direct substitute for corn, the cash market for grain sorghum can be directly hedged using corn futures. Milo can be bought and sold with basis contracts set according to corn futures prices, so the difference in price between corn and milo can actually be expressed as a basis spread. For instance, the nearby bid for corn in Phillipsburg, Kansas, may be 60 under the May corn futures contract, 
and the nearby bid for Milo in Phillipsburg, Kansas, may be 55 under the May corn contract. So we would say the corn to Milo spread was negative 5 cents at that point, no matter how the international futures market for corn behaves. There are other crops which are technically grown in rows, like sugar beets, cotton, sunflowers, and tobacco. But they are either fairly far out of the feed grain sector, to my knowledge nobody feeds tobacco to livestock, or they are a small enough segment of U.S. agriculture to be lumped together with the specialty crops, which will be discussed later. Wheat Wheat is the world's most widely grown grain. It can be grown on nearly every continent, with the exception of Antarctica, and in possibly every country. But producing wheat and using wheat is quite unlike dealing with row crops. The order of tasks are the same, planting, scouting, applying nutrients, harvesting, storing. But as we discovered in the crop calendar above, some varieties of wheat are actually planted in the fall, dormant over the winter, and harvested in the late spring or early summer. Like corn, wheat is technically a grass species, but that's about where the biological similarities end. The growth stages of wheat include tillering. Tillers are the independent leaf-like shafts that make up a grass plant. Then jointing, when the plant develops nodes with fully differentiated spikelets growing out of them. Then the boot stage when below the flag leaf a future head of grain forms. Then heading, when the head of wheat, containing individual berries of grain, ripens. And finally, maturity. Winter wheat farmers have, by virtue of the crop's very long growing season, a couple of benefits. For one thing, their crop can rely on roughly 10 months of weather to provide sufficient moisture rather than the seven months that corn and soybeans get. For another thing, and this is something which traders should be watchful for, wheat farmers have the ability to completely change their minds about even raising wheat on certain acres halfway through a growing season. If, after a droughty winter, it looks like the wheat crop is going to have a very poor start, a farmer can choose to just graze cattle on the spring or summer wheat grass, rather than wait to harvest the mature wheat. Similarly, if a spring frost severely damages the no longer dormant wheat crop, a farmer can abandon his whole wheat-growing plan by simply, quote, burning down the plants with a chemical herbicide and instead planting corn or soybeans in that same field at the usual spring time frame. A note about frost. Even though a region may technically get a frost one night, it may or may not actually harm the plants growing in that region. One rule of thumb is to say that temperatures around the plant's growing point, and tall plants can form somewhat of an insulating barrier around themselves, must reach lower than 28 degrees Fahrenheit for two straight hours before damage occurs, or reach lower than 30 degrees for four hours, or lower than 32 degrees for six hours but even these thresholds are different depending on which stage the crop is in. And even within a field, 
The results may be variable as relatively cooler air collects in valleys, but not on hillsides. Even spring wheat has some notable differences from our benchmark corn crop, despite being grown in roughly the same seasons. All wheat varieties tend to be more drought resistant than corn or soybeans, although they will obviously yield better with adequate moisture than they will without it. In very arid climates like eastern Colorado, wheat farmers sometimes summer fallow their fields, which is the practice of leaving a field unproductive, perhaps once every three years, so the soil's moisture profile can recharge. Weeds must still be managed during that fallow year, however, so the fields must be either tilled, leaving them highly susceptible to wind erosion, or chemically fallowed. Wheat plants also aren't particularly nitrogen efficient. A truly great wheat crop will require some extra fertilization, like corn, but unlike the legumes, soybeans, which can fix their own nitrogen. The timing and amounts of moisture and nitrogen provided to a wheat field, as well as the temperature that occurs while it's growing, can influence that wheat crop's ultimate protein level. Typically, a wheat field can sacrifice some protein for higher yields, or vice versa. Very high-yielding wheat fields usually don't produce wheat with a high protein level, but fields that are stressed by drought, and therefore pretty low-yielding, can produce some unusually high protein levels. Farmers can also influence their fields' protein levels and yields by timing their nitrogen applications correctly. But if their local cash market doesn't pay a premium for higher protein wheat, why would they bother? On the other hand, if there is a small protein premium in the market, what is the optimum mix of protein level and total yield from any given field, if one must be sacrificed for the other? These are the kind of considerations that can make trading wheat more challenging and more interesting than trading most other varieties of grain. Trading protein spreads is especially interesting from the demand side. Nearly every meal of an American's life may include some kind of wheat flour product. Bread, pasta, cookies, etc. Cereal grains, like wheat and rice, have relatively inelastic demand compared to meat or sugars, which consumers can forego if prices get too high. However, not all wheat is created equal. Flour mills seek out specific characteristics of wheat, depending on the ultimate product desired. Durham wheat is a specialty variety of spring wheat with very high protein levels used in bread flours around the world and pasta products here in the U.S. Other varieties of spring wheat tend to have higher protein levels than winter wheat varieties, which makes them relatively better suited to pasta and bread flours although wheat of all characteristics can be mixed and blended together into flour. If winter wheat has a low enough protein level, and this is particularly true of soft winter wheat grown in eastern states rather than the hard red winter wheat grown in the plains, it may never enter the human food chain and rather be used as animal feed. However, some soft winter wheat flour is prized for use in cakes and biscuits. Small Grains Oats, barley, rice, rye, millet, spelt, amaranth, teff, emmer, triticale, buckwheat, 
flaxseed, kamut. Some of these things you've probably eaten for breakfast or been served in a soup. Others probably seem like made-up words. But if you'd like to see what those ancient grains look like, you can typically find them in any health food store these days. They're called ancient because genetically they are very nearly unchanged from the wild grains our ancestors would have cultivated thousands of years ago. Not even wheat, which is also technically a small grain, displays heterosis like corn does, so there is relatively less commercial interest in breeding new lines of wheat, oats, barley, or rye seed, although they can be hybridized. In the case of those ancient grains, their novel prehistoricness actually serves them well in today's niche market. If you're a futures trader, oats, barley, and rice will be more interesting to you because they are the only ones that are traded on a futures exchange. Supply, acreage, yield, etc., and demand, food, seed, exports, etc., data is as easily available from the USDA for these crops as it is for corn or wheat. So a fundamental trader can get a good feel for these markets' relative bullishness or bearishness. In fact, Because such a relatively small proportion of North America's acreage gets planted to oats or barley, a person may feel they can truly master the full picture of expected production and demand in any given growing season. It used to be said that oats knows, which implied that price changes in the oat futures market tended to predict or lead price movements in corn and other grain markets. And maybe that was once true, but the floor traders who used to populate the open outcry oat trading pit at the Chicago Board of Trade aren't there anymore. Furthermore, the open interest in oat futures is typically less than 1% of the open interest in the benchmark corn futures contract. That makes them notoriously hard to trade, because there aren't as many market participants to meet your bid with an ask, or vice versa. And you have to assume that the folks who are using oat futures are doing so for a reason. Most of them are either growing the stuff themselves or are an end user. The CFTC's weekly Commitments of Traders report bears this out. Usually about three-fourths of the oat market is made up of producer-slash-merchant-slash-processor hedges. That means most of the other participants in the oat market will know more about supply and demand, and know it faster than a speculator could. This is also true for barley, which trades exclusively on the ICE futures exchange. Furthermore, much of North America's small grains crop is grown on contract, meaning an end user will agree to pay a grower a specific price for the crop if the grower agrees to raise it for them. The relative bearishness or bullishness of production from acres grown on contract should theoretically have very little influence on the wider market, since those bushels are already assigned a market home at a known price. This is particularly true for the rarer crops like amaranth and triticale. Otherwise, why would anyone grow such an uncommon crop without knowing she would find a willing buyer at the end of the season? But it is also true for crops like malting barley, which is used by the brewing industry to create the beer in your refrigerator. 
the price risk for grain grown on contract has already been laid off by both the producer and the end user. They both know what price they will receive or pay. So there is no further financial hedging necessary. There's one other thing to keep in mind when observing a small grains market. Whatever grain isn't destined to end up in the human food chain or the pet food or bird seed market can still be used as animal feed. In fact, even grain that was originally grown to fulfill a rice contract, for instance, if it ultimately doesn't turn out with high enough quality level, could still be sold as a livestock feed ingredient. For that reason, even if oat futures and barley futures trail the benchmark corn market by a couple dollars per bushel or more, these markets are still rough substitutes for one another and should display a fairly strong correlation with each other. Oil seeds. Flax is a rather hard crop to classify. Although the production practices and equipment used to grow it are pretty similar to other small grains, and even though it shares some of the same market space in the health food and bird seed sectors, it also has its own specialized market space. Fibers from the flax plant's stem are used to make linen, and in reality, it's an oil seed. Oil seeds include any crop that can be crushed for oil, so peanuts, Palm nuts, coconuts, castor beans, jatropha can all be considered oil seeds. If you've ever heard of linseed oil, linseed is actually just another name for flax. Anyway, the real benchmark of the oil seed market is soybeans, followed by canola, the world's second largest oil seed crop. There is about four and a half times as many soybeans produced. By weight around the world than there is canola. Canola, also called rapeseed, is more commonly grown in Europe, Canada, and Australia than it is in the U.S. What canola is grown in the U.S. is mostly planted in North Dakota or Montana or Minnesota or Idaho as a spring crop, or in Oklahoma and a few other Southern Plains states as a winter crop. With a growing season similar to winter wheat, there is a canola futures market traded on the ice and denominated in Canadian dollars. In order of world production quantities, other oil seeds include cottonseed, peanuts, and sunflower seed. Like flax and canola, sunflowers are an uncommon crop in most areas of the U.S., but experience thriving interest in regions that aren't too humid. Like the Dakotas and Western Kansas, oil seeds are susceptible to mold. Specialized varieties of sunflowers experience their own market niches as human snack food; those are confectionery sunflowers, or as bird seed. As oil seeds that can be used to produce edible cooking oils, the sunflower, cottonseed, and peanut oil markets are correlated to the soybean oil market. So rough hedges or speculative trades can be made in soybean oil futures to try and capture price movement in this sector. Specialty crops. I always kind of scratch my head when I walk into a hardware store and see the ten-pound bags of thistle seed for birdwatchers to put out for the finches. Who grows entire fields of thistles? 
And how does that work? Most farmers consider thistles to be noxious weeds and go to considerable expense and effort to eradicate them from their fields. Even with all the farmers I've met over the years, it wasn't until I met the hard-working women of East Africa sorting and sifting pans of tiny black seeds that I found an explanation for how thistle seed is produced for market. Here in the U.S., I met a guy once who worked for a farm that grew wildflower seeds to be sold to state highway departments. Apparently, those seeds were all cultivated and harvested by hand, so I imagine the thistle growing industry is similarly labor-intensive. But I still wonder what the neighbors with nearby corn and soybean fields think of the guy who intentionally plants a field full of noxious weeds. Anyway, there is obviously no end to the variety of crops which can be grown on American soil. Hay, edible dry beans, nuts, trees, like Christmas trees, vine crops, like grapes, fruits, or vegetables, can all be considered specialty crops. Where and how they are produced is usually the result of a perfect storm of geographical opportunity and relative profitability. Consider the case of sugar beets. First of all, because pretty much no one outside of Minnesota, Idaho, or North Dakota even knows what a sugar beet is, let's establish that. Sugar beets are pretty much like the beets you buy at the grocery store or grow in your garden in that they are a root vegetable of the beet family that grows underground. However, their flesh is white like a potato, and they have a very high sugar content, so they can be commercially sliced up like a shoestring potato, then cooked in hot water to extract a thick, sugary juice, which can then be stored or distilled down into sucrose, the crystallized sugar you buy at the grocery store to put in your cookie recipe or morning coffee. The sugar beet industry is very different than the grain industry. First of all, the equipment needed to harvest and handle bulky root vegetables is entirely different than the combine harvesters and grain hoppers used to harvest and haul grain. Secondly, unlike dry, storable grain, sugar beets are 80% water so they must either be processed into sugar immediately after harvest or piled up, ventilated, and covered with lime for the winter's deep freeze. If you're running a sugar beet processing campaign to cook fresh beets 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for only a portion of the year, you can't be hauling those beets from hundreds of miles away. There are only a few sugar beet processing plants in the United States, and all the nation's sugar beet acreage tends to be clustered nearby around a processing plant. It takes somewhat more than 100,000 sugar beet acres to feed a typical processing plant, about 150 square miles, although those acres will actually be spread out across more like 1,000 square miles because sugar beets are planted alongside corn, soybeans, or wheat in a rotation pattern that might only see sugar beets planted on any given field once every four years. To sell his sugar beets to the local processing plant, a farmer must belong to the farming cooperative, the co-op, which owns that plant. 100% of the sucrose, sugar beet, industry in the United States is owned by farmer co-ops, 
which sets it quite apart from the fructose produced by large ag processing corporations. However, to participate in such a co-op and have access to its profitable market space, a sugar beet farmer typically has to pay a membership fee based on the number of acres he signs up, which must meet some minimum number of acres, and which then contractually obligates him to plant sugar beets for a certain number of years. This ensures the local availability of sugar beets for that plant, and thus the plant's continued survival. The co-op markets its sugar and pays its member based on the profits from the sugar. The profits from growing a field of sugar beets are generally better than the profits from growing a similar-sized field of corn. Otherwise, no one would go to all this trouble and risk. The University of Minnesota estimates it takes more than three times as many human work units to grow sugar beets as it does to grow corn. But on the other hand, the opportunity to even enter this market space is only available to a few people who happen to farm in the regions where sugar beets grow and where sugar beet processors have thrived. Sugar beets require very long periods of sunshine to reach maturity, which is why their market has mostly developed in northern regions where summer daylight hours are very long, or in places like Colorado and Wyoming, where cloud cover doesn't disrupt much of the summer sunshine. This pattern for producing and using sugar beets is pretty much the same pattern as you'd see for most specialty crops. Their markets develop in the geographical regions where the crops thrive: cotton in the irrigated fields of Texas with a long growing season, fruits in the mild climate of California. And once the processing facilities are established in those places, virtually no one from outside that region would go to the expense and risk of growing that specialty crop anywhere else. Most of America's farmland could be used to produce carrots, for instance. But most of America's farmers wouldn't grow carrots unless they had a known nearby market into which they could sell them. Anyway, with regard to specialty crops' effects on the markets, cotton has its own futures market. But crops like sugar beets, tobacco, edible dry beans, and nuts, fruits, veggies, etc., have virtually no substitutability or market influence on the prices of corn, soybeans, or wheat. However, there's a reason I include them in this book. In the limited regions where they are grown, they have an immense influence on the price of farmland and the uses to which that farmland is put. Sugar beets are not part of a futures hedgeable or speculatable market. Their prices don't even necessarily correlate to the international cane-based sugar market. But wherever they are grown, their profitability. Will affect every land investor's and farmer's management decisions. The incremental changes in acreage use from one year to the next can have a profound effect on a grain market's supply and demand. If market prices motivate America's corn farmers to plant two percent more acres to corn this year than last year, and if yields are normal and demand simultaneously remains unchanged. The ending stocks-to-use ratio of the corn market can increase by more than just two percent, which alone would be significant, and the overall market sentiment can turn decidedly bearish. That's why each year's planting decisions, including every little 160-acre chunk that gets planted to peanuts or sugar beets, 
are rapidly analyzed by market participants. At the end of each March, USDA releases the results of their annual Prospective Plantings Survey. These reports show data collected from actual farmers who respond with how many acres they intend to plant to each crop during the next few months. USDA and private analysis firms can guess at those figures ahead of time based on the market's signals. A relatively high price for soybeans may economically motivate farmers to switch some of their wheat acres to soybeans, for instance. And in fact, the USDA does make some non-survey based long-term projections at their annual outlook meeting each February, called the baseline projections. Even the direct survey results in the prospective plantings report are never set in stone. What a farmer intends to plant in March may be significantly different than what he actually gets planted by the middle of June, if weather keeps him out of his fields at critical times, or if the futures markets alter his motivations during that time frame. Not until the USDA releases its crop production report is there one official source of data about how many acres were planted to each crop that year and how much of that crop was actually produced. Of course, by the time all that data gets officially collected, processed, and published, the market itself has long since digested the relative bullishness or bearishness of supply, so crop production reports can be fairly inconsequential to the futures markets. Organics From a lifestyle standpoint, some people seem to think it's cooler to purchase organic food than non-organic food. But as far as I can tell, the scientific basis for consumers to prefer organic agriculture products over conventionally raised agriculture products is, shall we say, limited. It's rarely documented what the consequences of eating non-organic food are supposed to be. Death? A third arm growing out of your head? Perhaps ridicule from the other trendy moms at daycare. I can see why a grocery shopper wouldn't want to buy a tomato or an apple that has recently been sprayed down with some toxic substance, but personally, I trust the FDA to keep any truly dangerous chemicals off our food. Anyway, the manner of, quote, bad things getting onto grain gets harder for me to conceptualize. Maybe you wouldn't want to bathe in anhydrous ammonia or glyphosate or any other mildly toxic, extremely helpful chemical farmers use to nourish their crops or reduce stresses in their crops. But you wouldn't want to bathe in bleach either. And anyway, the actual grain kernels, unlike the plants on which those kernels are grown, virtually never come in contact with any modern agrochemicals. Correspondingly, I think grocery shoppers are more likely to seek out organic vegetables than organic cereal. Organic milk, organic eggs, and organic beef, pork, or chicken must be produced by cows, chickens, and hogs who have only been fed organic grain. So there is a strong market for organically produced feed grain. To receive a USDA organic seal, a food product has to meet a lot of requirements, including land and water usage requirements. For instance, organic grain can't be raised from genetically modified seed, and it can't be fertilized with any synthetic fertilizers. 
This obviously makes achieving high yields more challenging from an organic grain field than it is from a grain field that has all the benefits of modern technology. One could argue that the corn which the Native Americans fed to the Mayflower passengers at the first Thanksgiving was already, quote, genetically modified, in the sense that humans had been cultivating certain seed characteristics over others and therefore radically altering the species over time. But what is really meant by GMO, genetically modified organisms, today is that the DNA of the grain seed has been altered with DNA from some other species, usually allowing it to produce a specific protein that protects it against some threat, like a rootworm. So our techniques for altering grain species today may be more scientific, more precise, and yield faster results than the historical selection and breeding practices, but the final products are still grain that tastes the same to a cow today as it would have tasted to a cow 60 years ago. Although it's not really germane to the topic of organic grains, Let me just also say that fructose sweeteners, such as high fructose corn syrup, also known as HFCS, the substance in soda pop that gets the nutrition police so fired up, are nutritionally equivalent to table sugar, but neither one of them are particularly good for your waistline. And yet cane sugar, of all unlikely health foods, has achieved a kind of mystic righteousness as certain activists pursue their quest to throw stones at the modern agriculture industry. And don't even get me started on the demonization of wheat gluten, when over 99% of people have no sensitivity to the gluten itself and could actually use a nice boost of whole grains in their diets, rather than following some superstitious fad. But I digress. Whether you or I want to purchase organic food products, whether you or I can even afford organic food, or whether there really is something inherently evil about modern corn, a substance which up until recently was just a grain, just the means of pushing thousands of years of human civilization forward and pulling billions of humans out of starvation, doesn't matter much. Obviously, some people want to purchase those specialized products, and the customer is always right. The customer, in fact, is willing to pay a premium for being right, or self-righteous. Pick your adjective. A trip to the grocery store will show you that the premium for organic products over conventional products could be anywhere from 30% of the sticker price to triple the price, depending on the product. This is a function of both demand and supply. A consumer who believes non-organic milk will turn her children into chemically altered zombies will have a greater willingness to pay for milk that supposedly won't do that. From the supply standpoint, however, organic ag products can be more expensive to produce. An organic dairy farmer must buy more expensive organic grain to feed his cows, so the market must reimburse him for that expense or else he'll just go back to producing milk conventionally. In some cases, it can actually be cheaper to produce an organic crop than a conventional crop. USDA's Agricultural Resource Management Survey, ARMS, showed in 2009 
that organic wheat producers actually spent thirteen dollars less per acre on input costs than conventional wheat farmers spent. Presumably, this is because they didn't have to pay for high-priced synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, and instead may have used animal manure to fertilize their crops. I will say, as someone who once worked at an elevator that handled both conventional grain and organic grain, organic grain is more likely to have weed seeds and other foreign material in it, because organic farmers can't use chemical herbicides to control that threat. It's also more likely to be damaged by insects or mold. Same story for pesticides. The quality losses and the expenses which organic farmers must undertake to clean their grain need to be reflected by higher market prices. So the market itself for organic grains is more like the market for specialized crops than it is for typically traded corn, soybean, and wheat commodities. You could express the price for nearby organic wheat as a basis figure compared to the current wheat futures price, but because the supply and demand situation for organic grains changes independently from the supply and demand situation for feed grains in general, the futures markets aren't always a nicely correlated ideal hedging tool. In fact, organic grains are more likely to be grown on contract like a specialized crop. Than they are to be blindly grown by a farmer who intends to just seek out the best nearby market after harvest. These contracts can be quite lucrative. The organic market displayed more favorable price differentials in some non-recession years than in recent recessionary years, but nevertheless, many business-minded farmers have turned to organic grain farming, attracted more by the profit than the ideology. Of course, there are many organic farmers who choose that path out of a sincere belief they are doing something good for the planet, and I can respect those efforts, even if I think their products can only ever be a niche luxury for a certain subset of the human race, and the marketing for those products seems to imply something undesirable about any non-organic food. If I come off as overly defensive of conventional agriculture. And overly sensitive about the air of superiority from the organic segment of the consumer market, I think that's because I see too much rhetoric from food bloggers and environmentalists who seem to imply every farmer should be forced into giving up their present use of technology. Organic food consumption is indeed related to moral licensing. Which is to say that I wouldn't put it past some consumers of organic food to try and legislate all farmers from using modern fertilizers and modern pest treatments. To whom I would say, don't take away my no-till soil conservation by taking away my herbicides. As it stands, the consumption of organic food is a luxury, and anyone with a sufficient bank account is free to do it. And at this point, I don't know of any pending legislation to outlaw GMO seed, in the U.S. Anyway, Europe is another story. But if such legislation did occur, and if all American farmers were bound to use only Stone Age organic farming practices, let's consider what would happen. Sticking only to the benchmark corn market, let's assume yield would drop by about ten percent. If the world produced nine tenths as much corn as it currently does, without a change in demand, the ending inventory of corn at the end of any given marketing year 
could go from being 15% of the total initial supply to being only 5%, for instance. Or it could go from being 10% to being 0%. In the first instance, rationing would occur, and there might be riots as certain countries' populations discovered their favorite food products were no longer affordable. Or there simply might be an abandonment of the developing world's recent adoption of more nutritious, higher-protein diets. In the second instance, there would be massive starvation. Neither instance would be good for agriculture. Neither instance would be good for humankind. As Robert Parlberg wrote in his book, Starved for Science, How Biotechnology is Being Kept Out of Africa, quote, Citizens in wealthy countries are skeptical toward genetically engineered crops, in part because they know they can remain rich and well-fed without them. End quote. The rest of the world doesn't have that luxury. In my opinion, the temptation for organic activists to want to handcuff modern farmers from using all the modern technology that has improved our quality of life is, at best, misguided. No one is more motivated to use truly sustainable production practices than grain producers ourselves. I define sustainable as capable of being done logically and profitably forever without depleting resources. If GMO grain causes some unknown reproduction malformation in mammals, it is our own cattle and hogs who will be the first to eat that grain and suffer that consequence. If a fertilizer damages the long-term fertility of soil, that soil will someday be our own children's soil. So we wouldn't use those tools if peer-reviewed science convinced us those would be the consequences. There are three reasons why grain farmers are unlikely to use any more agrochemicals than absolutely necessary why another age of DDT overuse won't occur, why we won't experience a silent spring. First, overuse of specific herbicides or insecticides can lead to resistant weeds or pests, and no farmer wants to incubate those. Farmers are therefore constantly on the lookout for new modes of action that can effectively manage crop stressors without creating the new superweed, and they're unlikely to use a herbicide or pesticide in any greater quantities or for any other uses than its label prescribes. Secondly, when nitrates or other chemicals are found in human water supplies several decades after their parent chemicals were overused on agricultural land, it's out here in the rural, very agricultural communities where farmers themselves live. Now that the mechanism of that pollution is better understood, no farmer wants to apply an ounce more chemical than his crop needs or can totally absorb. Why would he knowingly threaten the health of his own family and neighbors? Thirdly, and perhaps most compellingly, no farmer wants to apply an ounce of wasted chemical because it's expensive. Gone are the days of strewing several hundred pounds of nitrogen per acre just because it was cheap. Today's ag technologies, Side dressing, foliar applied nitrogen, application rates prescribed by the square foot. Allow farmers to apply less than half the fertilizer rates they used a generation ago. 
today's conventional grain farmers are using fewer resources to grow more food that will end up in more human stomachs, more spread out across the globe than ever before. So as for me, when I go to the grocery store, I take pleasure in purchasing conventional, non-organic food products. That's not because I have anything against organic farmers. They tend to put out a good niche product. It's because I know I'm supporting farmers who embrace technology and are at the forefront of solving humanity's real challenge, feeding 9 billion hungry people by 2050. Many of the facts and considerations in this chapter may not have seemed directly associated to the grain markets themselves. What does a futures speculator care if the corn price goes up because production goes down due to poor weather or due to poor production practices, just so long as the price goes up? Still, any participation in the grain markets is a form of participation in agriculture, and it should be regarded as one piece of a beautiful, challenging, miraculous whole.